We continue with part two, parenting children with extreme behaviors due to trauma. Here's Jackie P. Taylor. The resources that we had for post-adoption through our county were pretty poor, and they actually just um, added more stress. Um, They had to come to our house when all the kids were there, and it was to the point where my husband said, I think it would be better, be better if you left. <laughs> so yeah, and did, you have respite? did you have respite? I mean, during foster care, you have respite services, but they don't have respite yeah. services as an adoptive parent because the thought process is they're yours, just like your biological often, but yeah. there should be some, in my vantage point, some level of responsibility that goes with that because I learned, you know, what, the trauma and what that looks like and what the needs are and how I needed some more post-adoption. But your caseworkers, your leaders in this space, you study this, you know that if those brain synapses don't connect, if they don't get swaddled, if they don't have that connection in the first, you know, zero to 18 months, what could result? So you would think that there's some level of responsibility to make sure that we get the services that we need. I know there were several times where I needed a break, like I needed a timeout as a single parent, sort of like the tap in, didn't have anybody to tap in. And so, you know, just having those respite services, and I found out the hard way they're gone. You don't get it. And that could just be a few hours to a day. Was that kind of what you saw? So true. I mean, thankfully for us, um, our boys, we have ma- remained very close with our boys' foster parents and they gave us the, That's the great. break we needed. Um, did I call on them as often as I should have? No. Cause I also struggle with asking for help <laughs> and uh, big time, but um, I, and it, there's also an interesting dynamic of you can't just leave your kids with anyone. Um, well, that's why I said respite because at least you have the confidence as a mom or dad to say, I know they've been vetted, right. They've been licensed. Yeah. You'd yeah. think it's, it's, yeah, it's so, it's so complicated. It's so complex. Um, so I think we would feel sometimes even going to church again, thankfully our church was so receptive, but dropping our, our boys off, knowing the behaviors that will likely surface yeah. um, again and having it be potentially really disruptive for the other kids in the class and keeping everybody safe, like things, but church was such like a, like a, a, a needed breath. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I would also say I've co- gotten in the habit of just forcing myself to schedule coffee with a girlfriend. Um, I'll look at That's my your self-care. Yes. Because I have to be able, I will. And I've told a few close friends, I say, if you stop hearing from me, if particularly I had a neighbor across the street who I was very close with, I said, if you stop seeing me coming out the door, if you stop, this is a sign that I am, I am basically tuning myself. I, I am, I am hiding. Um, and I need somebody to come after me. Um, that's really such good self-awareness. I had a IG live that I did, especially with everything that's going on around self-care and checking in. So can you, can you walk through that journey? Like, what did it take for you to get to the point to say, you even know what it looks like because sometimes you fall into it and you don't really know what it looks like. So how do you do that? So you let your close friends and family know when, when you're showing those signs. Yes. And just kind of giving them a window. I didn't even know this about myself until probably about two years ago when I was doing some deeper work. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Enneagram (laughs) and I found such, um, I was like, Oh my goodness, nothing has ever really, um, come close. Tell everybody what that is. Sure. Sure. So the Enneagram is like an ancient personality tool. It, it, um, you have up to 
and you have nine types and um, you can, it's, it's all based on how you're internally motivated to mm. do the things that you do. So it's different than Myers-Briggs or DISC, which are mainly behavioral behavior oriented. Right. It's your deep motivation based on your core fears and your core longings. So it's all about reacting basically out of a concern that you're not going to get what you need which is a very interesting place to, to look at. So I started realizing, oh, when I s- perceived that I was not measuring up to what other people needed me to be, I wasn't performing well, then I would hide. So once I started recognizing that is a pattern I have had since I was little, um, it's a, not a good coping strategy, but that's what I used to do with drawing. And I started just telling people when I was in a better place, hey, if I kind of disappear, again, please, please seek me out. I want to be, I want to be sought out. I need someone to say, how about we go grab coffee? Um, or just a quick text. Hey, how are you really doing? <laughs> so or just to listen, um, no advice, just to listen as you go through it, because some of the things we endure is so unbelievable that sometimes sharing it and saying it just is cathartic and kind of helps you get through the process. But what you made me think of when you talk about not living up to expectations you know, parents, mothers in particular, are expected to be martyrs. But yeah. martyrs die. I don't know if I want to be in the category of a martyrs suffer. Like that's just inherent in being, being a martyr. And so, you know, when you're going through, you know, physical aggression in addition to verbal aggression and property destruction and things of the like, you know, as a human, it, it gets difficult. And you begin to, as, as a parent or mom, feel like because that's my child, I need to go through. I need to endure. Have you kind of grappled with that as well? Like how much, even before wilderness or residential or how much is, is enough? Right. I think in our story in particular, I'm really grateful that I never felt unsafe, um, particularly with my older son. Um, But I think having other voices like uh, and relying, for instance, on our, our school uh, was amazing. The um, the guidance counselor, just having other more objective people in your life um, to say, that's not okay. Because <laughs> you don't realize, I think, as, as a parent, how much you have gotten used to the stress. Almost like, I don't know if you've ever heard of, yeah, like that, that, that analogy of it's kind of gross, but like the, the frog in the water and in the pot and how the temperature gradually gets turned up and up to the point, you know, yeah. to the point, you, we didn't realize until our son had gone into, into inpatient, how incredibly stressful, um, our lives had become. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, um, I yes. think it, it was helpful to have other people say, no, no, you need to go to the ER. You need to go because I think you get so good at handling it, figuring it out. That's exactly yeah. what my question was. Yeah. It's, it's just, and so what I hear you saying is really good advice for those of us who are experiencing similar um, situations that are listening to our conversation. I agree. It's so important to let other people in. Because so often we can go into like figure it out mode that we can get into our own little cove, but having others to be able to say, look, if you see this, I need you to do this. But then also to be on the outside looking in to say, you don't realize how warm that water is getting. <laughs> and if I might also add, you also have to do the work of discerning who you shouldn't share things with. I think that is something that I have 
slowly learned <laughs> that there's there are just people again they're well intentioned they're one what does it look like when you're sharing with the wrong person oh um you end up having to do a lot of a, a lot of explaining mm-hmm. um and that's very draining having to give all the reasons why the decisions that you're making are really in that child's best interest in the family's best interest like that it's a loving choice Whereas on the outside, again, from maybe a traditional parenting standpoint, it looks very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and just recognizing that there are people that you can you can just be more surfacey with of just like, you know, it's it's been kind of hard. Um, you can just think, you know, think of us, pray for us, whatever, whatever your um, whatever you want them uh, right. to do right. versus the people that you allow to take that deep dive with you. Um, mm-hmm. And those that are not going to expect to, that they don't have to fully understand right. and to support you. Because it's hard. I mean, if, if you look at it from the perspective, I mean, when you're in it, of course, you want people to support and to understand. But when they are not with you every day, when they are not experiencing the interactions, the conversations with the professionals around what options are at any point in time, and they have neurotypical kids or they don't deal with the diagnosis, they don't even have the inputs to really be a valuable, right. Um, resource for you. So I think you're so wise in saying, just be judicious about who you share what with and what your expectations of them are. We, I just want to make sure just for clarity, we talked about wilderness uh, before. Can you just share with folks what a wilderness program is? Sure. So, um, due to our son's, um, severity, they call it acuity. Um, whenever he was in, um, first in ER, the ER, and then sent to inpatient for some safety and stabilization. Um, Wilderness was the only program. It's, it's a very high level of care. Um, And that literally means that they are being removed from just about everything very familiar with their regular lives Mm -hmm. and put in a um, generally a woods uh, camping type environment. There are different types of wilderness. Our son is in one that is purely nomadic. Mm -hmm. So every day or two, yes, they, they move camp and they are designed, they have no access to technology, uh, which is great because that can be great. Right. I think we could all (laughs) the big trigger for a lot of us, but particularly for, for these kids. Um, and they are living outdoors. Um, they have a tent, you know, for, for shelter, but they're building fires to stay warm. They have, they're outfitted with excellent gear, like Everest level gear for, for the winter time. Um, so they're very safe, but it really just being out in nature is, gives them almost this greater clarity. Um, it's peaceful. Um, it just does something for our souls, I think, but then they're surrounded with peers. It's a small group peers that are usually struggling with some similar, um, similar things, and then field guides and therapists Clinicians. Out there with them. Yes. To act in the moment. I mean, it's basically 24 seven therapy is right. the opportunity. They have to also get used to t- frequent transitions, changing their jobs that they're Which responsible is usually for. really hard for kids. So it builds that muscle of being able Most to of them have a, exa- what's called executive functioning delays. So not really um, doing well at planning and executing a job and finishing, you know, as they should. And the frustrations they might have interpersonally, they have to work those out (laughs) because they're living. Nowhere to go. You're living together. You're supporting. So it can be so 
the, the amount of self-awareness that they start to, to get because all the normal distractions of life. And even, again, this is the part that can be really hard for people who don't understand um, where our kids are at or what they need is that the parent factor is also removed because generally what happens is the, the kids in wilderness will experience the exact same difficulties and previously they've said, well, that's because my mom did this, or that's because of like they blame, but then in wilderness, they're confronted with none of that's here and you're still struggling. Oh, yeah. That's what I meant by the triangulation that yes, it's exactly your life, but it's, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. I just want to qualify that not all wilderness programs are created equal. I know yeah. that Susan and I had a conversation and the one that she's referring to is very much um, a trauma informed and focuses and has like a specialization with kids who um, have suffered from adoption. You may hear of other similar types of programs that are focused on addiction, substance abuse and things of the like and, and, and a myriad. So I would just encourage those listening or watching to just do your research um, but I know this has been an effective model. However, it is generally not in, covered by insurance and it's not cheap. No, so, no. you know, when I talk about resources being made available, this is one of those upper echelon top-notch resources that adoptive and, or I should say children with strong or complex attachment issues need, but yeah, insurance yeah. doesn't cover it. It's considered non-traditional. And when you go into the hospitalizations to stabilize, they truly just focus on stabilization and the children finally build a connection with someone to get stabilized. And then they have to swap because 30, 60, 90 or whatever it is, that is a temporary way to address it. Insurance won't cover it beyond there. So what insurance will cover and help means that there is an equity and what's available to the children who need these services. So I just wanted to, to call that out. I didn't want to, you know, Make I it because <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it. Whenever we first heard, because we, we were progressing in, whenever our son was in inpatient, he was being what's called continually like activated by the revolving door of of teens that were coming in and out. So his attachment. Okay, can you explain what activated means? Because we're using these terms that we. I know. Never, I'm sorry. What does, that, what does that look like for people that don't get it? I mean, I think a a word that we might be able to put in there would be um, triggered, um, that it is something that, um, so for him having a, like peers coming in and most um, most of the time a stay in an in inpatient stabilization is seven, maybe to 14 days. days yeah, unless you get a court request to extend it. Mm -hmm. Yes, so it's short. And so for um, a, a, a student, a, a, a adolescent who's really struggled with attachments, they're having these constant attachments happening and then broken. And so for him, he was really struggling and his activation was the behaviors that were coming out of these deep emotions that he was unable to express. So um, just for average people, this could mean not saying this is your situation, but you and I have seen support groups, text groups, and, you know, represent the stories of so many. Um, this can mean fighting. This can mean yelling. This can oh, yeah. mean you're sitting and having a conversation and then all of a sudden there's a punch and there's a hit because you think of something that happened weeks ago. <laughs> that's not even the current situation. This makes it more difficult for the kids to be with their peers because, you know, if there is an act, a behavior that precedes it, then you can catch it in time. But when you have impulsivity um, that accompanies it because of that fight or flight that's going on, it, it's hard to see. Um, it, it makes it more difficult to treat and support. And quite frankly, most parents at home are not trained in hold techniques 
right? When they're in these facilities, they have like special holes to keep them safe and to keep others safe. We're not trained, you know, generally, I'm not saying everyone on those types of things. So I just wanted to kind of share for those that don't experience that, what that reactivity and what those behaviors end up looking like. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, yeah. And so for us, in terms of the insurance piece, they were covering this inpatient because it's very medical. Right. Um, and then it quickly working with the social worker um, who was doing her absolute best um, to work with us. She started giving us ideas because we felt like we'd been thrown in the deep end um, of a swimming pool and um, with weights on our feet. Honestly, it just felt like we were just drowning. And so suddenly trying to come up with, OK, what programs and Every program, um, including residential, um, would not accept our son because of his level of severity, what he was displaying in inpatient. I kept just saying, this isn't my son. (laughs) This isn't my, but he was, it was such a pressure cooker for him of all the things that really just caused him to, like you said, react. Um, Mm -hmm. And they you know, these other programs were thinking, we can't guarantee that we can keep him safe or the other students. So it turned out. Yeah. Wilderness was an option. So let me just explain. So children exhibit behaviors, no fault of their own. Again, we're focusing on the the parenting component um, that, you know, necessitate like what they call a level six or a highest level of care, which is like locked ward. They have to get keys, you know, to come in and out. Um, It's like a hospital-like facility, um, but medically focused. When they graduate from that or time lapses, because they don't have to graduate from it, as as Susan shared, um, they are able to kind of step down to a different level of care. But those facilities also have criteria. And they may say if they've exhibited physical aggression in the last 30 days, which nine times out of 10, they would have in the last 90 days, and they're not fully, then we can't take them. So then there's this period from this level of care to the step down, which they really need for like longer term therapies, and they get sent home. So the same behaviors that this facility could not handle, right, with trained staff, and this facility felt "Mm," wasn't really, you know, at the level of care, or insurance just said no, right? And until you fight insurance, the child has to be discharged. So in that interim period, those behaviors are still being shown and they're home. And so that's the piece where the strength that it takes to research for that level, the next level, the step-down facility, to go back and forth, to provide documentation, to get old IEPs and psychological assessments, you're doing and juggling that at the same time that you're ducking at home or trying to keep other family members, including your, you know, child with the behavior safe. So I just wanted to share kind of what that looks like in in the world of parents who are handling this, because Susan, for most people, this is like some old lifetime movie, Dr. Phil stuff that, yeah. So I just. And it's, it's, you're absolutely right with even talking about like the, the phone calls and the gathering of paperwork, all of that documentation, getting facilities to talk to each other, the releases that you have to sign and you need to create an app. There, there has to be an app. Right? Would, great idea. <laughs> that would be amazing. Cause every time it would be like, well, have you signed a release to allow us to talk to such individual people, you know, individual therapists, doctors, whatever. It's just that level is exhausting. And you're right. At the same time, you still have your child in crisis, your family is still in crisis. And your other kids that are like, you've been gone for four days because the hospitals may not have beds. And so you're waiting overnight for several days. So everybody, yes, exactly. 
or continual, we were in the behavioral health part of the ER and we were with all of the adults who were also really struggling and just trying to protect even our son. And from it's, I mean, it, it's a whole other world that most people don't even know exists. No, no. So that's part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation. It is really impossible. And that's why I waited so long from the launch of the show to really do justice to this topic in one show. I'm going to pray about the best way to convey our experience, but in a way that is solution seeking, where we're bringing on experts or really trying to support resources to change things. But I think telling the story is going to at least start to bring awareness to it. So I appreciate you. I'm grateful for you for being so courageous um, to have this conversation with me. I'm going to keep you in my prayers. Please keep me in yours. I tell people I've prayed more in my forties than I have in my entire life. Um, but again, thank you for this platform. It is so, um, I appreciate it and it is so, so needed. Absolutely. Now you, are you also, you're hilarious as all get out on Instagram. Like, and I think, I think there's something like you either resort to like falling into a hole or you just have to find humor in it all. And I think, I love that you find a way to laugh at yourself and to find humor in it all. So I have to, I, and I love my, one of my goals in life is to make people not just laugh, but feel comfortable. And cause I think whenever we can create that space of bringing down people's like defenses, like I don't have to beat, you don't have to prove anything to me. And then let's get real and have a conversation and connect. Um, that really is what I believe part of, part of why I'm here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan. Appreciate you. And we'll talk soon. We'll keep in touch. Thank you. If you can relate, please visit therealjuggle.com and click on the microphone icon to share your story or what your experience is. I'd be happy to include you. I think the more of us that speak to this topic, the more impetus and momentum we'll have in getting additional resources for our children. Please visit therealjuggle.com and sign up so that you can get alerted when the next episode is available. In the meantime, be kind, be a blessing, and be yourself.